what it is to be people who are devoted, a community who are devoted in all these different ways, devoted in prayer, in the word, uh, devoted to each other, devoted to the breaking of bread. And we were just saying in our group then, um, like I feel it, other people feel it. We feel the absence of, of gathering around the table today, which is an evidence of, of uh, just the real fruit and the real help that, that the Lord's Supper is. And then finally, looking today at what it is to be a community who are devoted to generosity. So let me read these verses to us again. Acts chapter 2. This is really weird, right? So I'm preaching here, and then the guys are over there looking at a screen over there. This is just bonkers. But we're rolling with it, guys. It's amazing, as Rebecca says. All right, let's do it. Acts chapter 2, verse 42 to 47. This is the early church. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul. And many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts praising God and having favour with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Let me just pray. Father, we thank you so much for this passage. We thank you for all of the help and hope and truth that we've been able to glean from it over the last five weeks. And Father, we ask just for this this last look at it um, in, in a while probably. We pray that you would maybe even show us something new, something that we've not seen before. Show us a new aspect of your character. Show us a new reason to adore you and worship you. And Holy Spirit, we pray that you would do what you do. Lead us to truth. Help us to believe. Help us to see. Help us to feel and experience that this word is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. We pray, Holy Spirit, that you would change us. Change us to be more like Jesus. Change us to have, have his heart Change us to see the world as he sees it, to see each other as he sees us, to see what we have as he sees what he has, a gift to be given. And so, Father, all these things we pray in your son Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen. So here we have these guys who have devoted themselves, devoted themselves to teaching, to fellowship, to prayer, to the breaking of bread. All's coming on everyone. Wonders and signs are being done through the apostles. They're all together. They're gathering together. Everything they have is in common. And they were selling their possessions, selling their belongings, and giving away what they had to anyone who had need. Those who were receiving were receiving with generous hearts. They were praising God. They were growing favor with all the people, not just in the church, but outside the church as well. And as they went about this, the Lord added to their number, day by day, those who were being saved. We've said before, haven't we, that this passage in Acts is like, it's like the poster of, of good gospel community. We look at it and we want it. It just looks, um, it looks like a, just a beautiful, compelling picture of what a good gospel community is. And it is stunning. But actually, when, when you understand the context into which it was written, and we read these acts of generosity given away to each other and 
helping one another out and all these incredible things going on. When you understand the context, actually it grows in a layer and a depth of beauty. So, so we know that, that Luke is writing about the, the early church who first gathered here in the city of Jerusalem. Now in the city of Jerusalem at this time, in the first century, there were clear social divisions. So there were rich parts of the city and there were poor parts of the city. And the rich part of the city was, was kind of upwind of the poor part of the city. And in between the two, you had um, all of the sewage was flowing from the rich part towards the flow part. You had rubbish dumps and, and it was all flowing downstream to where these poor parts were. They would get the smell, they would get all of the, the feces and just all the horrible things that came out of this rich part of the city would flow towards these poor areas. All of the resources of the city were in this rich part. There was a, a significant wealth gap between these two areas. And at the time, there we go, the frosts are coming on. Let's see if, um, I'm going to have to, if a baby comes on the screen, guys, I'm going to have to stop. And we'll just take a moment. But let's just see what happens. In, in Jerusalem at that time, there was a huge wealth gap. And the ruler at the time um, was the son of Herod the Great. Now, Herod the Great will be familiar with him because during the Advent series, we heard a bit about Herod the Great. He was um, a powerful ruler. He was the ruler who... Uh, but about a genocide. He wanted to, to do away with Jesus and wanted um, all the sons uh, across the area to be, to be exterminated. He was a tyrant, but he was also an entrepreneur and someone who, who um, had a plan for construction across the city. And basically his regime was to try and make this wealthy part of the city as wealthy as it could be, as prosperous as it could be. And his means of doing that was to trample on the poor. And so he would tax the poor just so that the, the rich elite could have all the luxuries that they wanted. Now, at this time, only 10% of the population of Jerusalem lived in, in the city centre. 90% of the population lived around the city and they were farmers. It was an agricultural society. And Herod the Great, as he was pulling out his regime, he had influence in every area. He had influence over even the temple. He murdered some of the priests and positioned his own priests in the Jewish temple. He had influence over the agricultural industry, which made up 90% of the economy at the time. And so he decided to tax anyone who worked in agriculture. He would tax them up to 33%. Like, guys, we think our national insurance and our income tax is bad. Like, imagine living there. 33% of their tax was gone. If you were a fisherman, 50% of your income was gone on tax. And then on top of the tax from Herod, you had 12.5% tax from the Roman Empire. You had to pay a city tax. If you went to the temple, you had a temple tax to pay. If you were part of this 90%, which was outside of this area of wealth, you were left with not much at all. Nine out of 10 people lived in poverty. That is the context into which Luke is writing. And this divide was extreme. Archaeologists recently uncovered um, a cellar in the city of Jerusalem full of bottles of wine, each of them worth over £20,000 in today's money. And there was stacks of the stuff which hadn't even been touched. The wealth gap between these two groups was huge. And this regime carried on and it was thriving in the day that Luke is talking about here. 
But as the gospel began to take hold, and as we begin to see communities of God's people setting up in different parts of the city, we get to see the church not ignoring their context, but stepping into it. So it's interesting in our day, we, we experience some of the, the same sort of struggles. There's a significant wealth gap. There's a lot of need around us. And there's debates that go on in some churches and with some Christians about whether we should engage in the social need or just stick to the gospel. Like just live out the Great Commission. So just make disciples, baptize, teach them all about the gospel and just ignore the social need. Like that's not what Jesus has called us to. But for the early church, that wasn't even a question. Like for them, those two things went hand in hand. Generosity for them, engaging in the reality of the world that they lived in was central to the gospel. Generosity was a mark of the Christian life. And so they engaged in both. They were gospel people, which meant that they saw the needs around them and they stepped in to address them. And what they were doing was really just walking in obedience to what Jesus had commanded them. You look in Matthew chapter six, and we see that Jesus commands his people to pray, to fast, and to give. And he says that there will be rewards for all three of those things. They are the three marks for Jesus of a good Christian community that we pray, we fast, and we give to the poor. You look at Paul's writings in Romans chapter 15, he commends the church in Macedonia for taking a collection, a collection for the church in Jerusalem because they were poor. They were part of this 90%. They, they were in poverty. In 1 Corinthians 16, again, he, he calls about bringing a, a tie together, an offering again for the church in Jerusalem because they were poor. In Acts chapter 4, just a few pages on, you get this beautiful picture of generosity taking hold of the Christian community. And Barnabas sells his property and gives all the money to the apostles and says, you do what you need to do with it. Like just, that is radical. That is extreme. Like we look at him like, oh, like, he doesn't call me to do that sell my home and give it to the church wow you see in acts that god is so powerfully at work that no one considered their possessions to be their own and they gave to whoever had need it was a, a culture a culture of generosity and we see in the passage that we just read that this early church they gave they saw the needs around them and they addressed them they shared what they had they opened their homes the gospel culture that was so ingrained in this church moved them towards radical acts of generosity so different to the culture of the world the culture of the world is driven by greed and if ever we give we give out of out of guilt because we think we have to or because we just want to get away that that feeling of guilt so okay how much is it going to cost me to get rid of this this guilt whereas within a culture that is grounded in the gospel instead of our natural instinct being to keep our natural instinct is to give away you see the contrast between a, a gospel culture and a worldly culture in a worldly culture we think have i got enough has my family got enough like the logic of the world is I earned it, so I keep it. It's not, can I give what I have away? But in Acts, and we see in, in this passage, week after week, there is a different type of logic that takes hold of God's people. Jesus teaches us a better way to live. Jesus teaches us 
to have generosity being part of our regular rhythm. And Jesus teaches us that we should, instead of trying to build up storehouses here, we should store up an eternal reward. And as we do that, you see this through the New Testament, Jesus teaches it, the apostles teach it. When we engage in acts of generosity, we are rewarded. Yes, we will be rewarded with heavenly rewards, but we are rewarded here and now with joy. You know, gospel generosity, folks, isn't affected by slumps in interest rates. It's not affected by fluctuations in the market. Like, I don't know, like a, whatever happens with, with cryptocurrency, like that's not going to affect us. When we engage in acts of gospel generosity, we receive joy. Jesus didn't just teach the church about a life of generosity. He showed them. The gospel shows us the most spectacular act of generosity that this world will ever see. Romans 8 verse 32 says, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. God the Father sends his son to be punished and to die in our place for our sin. It's interesting, a lot of people hear that, like God's sending his son to die for us and they think, well, well, that's just cruel, that's, that's abusive, that's not, that's not what a loving father would do. But the thing is, God's nature is, is holy. His nature is that he is good. And so when he sees his creation sinning and acting against his perfect law, he cannot not judge sin. He has to punish it. And it's not that he's a bully or that he's wicked, it's that his nature won't allow him not to. He has to judge it. He has to move against it. But he loves us so much that he would rather that his own son die than that we would be separated from him. And so in the greatest act of generosity, the father gives us the life of his son and he takes the wrath that is due to us off of us and places it onto Jesus. And Jesus takes it, willingly takes it, Even though he's perfect, he takes it for us. His uh, generosity overflows for us in that he suffers and dies for our sin. He bears our judgment. He bears our condemnation. He endures the abandonment from his father. He takes on the shame for all of our sins, every single one of them, even the worst of our sins. He takes on the shame for us so that we don't have to bear. The gospel, folks, is a story of the most extravagant, costly and love-filled generosity. And it's that story that forms this early church that we read about in Acts chapter 2. And all the spectacular acts of generosity that we see in Acts and right the way through the New Testament, they are all the rational response from a people who have been formed by the gospel. And so... For us, for a community of God's people, the gospel, not guilt, is our motivation for generosity. I just want to give us three three points just in the rest of our time here to see what a community of God's people walking in a devotion to generosity looks like. And the first thing is, is that it is the gospel that motivates us, not guilt. You know, Paul in, in Romans 12, he's kind of walked through the gospel in the first 
front end of the book of Romans and he gets to Romans chapter 12 after he's portrayed the beauty of the gospel and he says in view of God's mercy so in view of of all that I've told you about the gospel give 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 your lives as your act of worship give your lives as a as a sacrifice in view of the gospel give That's the gospel logic. That's the generosity logic. Not that we give out of guilt, but in view of the gospel, because of the truth of the gospel, that's why we give. That's our rational response, Paul says. And listen to what he says. Give your life. Like, it doesn't start small. It's not like, okay, in view of the gospel, work out what 10% of your income is and then give that. No, that's, that's not what he says. He says, give everything that you have, give your life, give all that you are, give your thoughts, your, your words, your deeds, your resources, give it all to God. And for the Christian, that is gospel logic. That just makes sense. Like in view of Romans chapter one to chapter 11, that just makes sense. I would want to give all that I have. When I see all that God has given to me, when I see the father putting forth his son to die for my sin, when I see Jesus being punished on the cross for my sin, it just makes sense up here that I would give him everything. It's not just an intellectual logic. Actually, it's a heart logic. Actually, we we can't not but give all that we are. You see, when we become a Christian, our, our affections change. Our desires change because we are united to Christ. And because, you, we are, because we are united to Christ, that kind of extravagant generosity that we see in the gospel, that radical generosity that we see Jesus engage in, the Father, the Spirit engage in, that's now our DNA. It's the same blood that runs through our veins. And so for all of us right now, I don't know where you are in terms of whether you find that this uh, uh, devotion to generosity like an easy thing or whether you find it difficult. My guess is you probably find it difficult. I'm sure we all do. You may not be feeling that your life reflects the kind of generosity that we see in the gospel. You may not feel like you're walking in step with the type of generosity that we're called into. You may be distracted. You may feel like your your generous life as it should be is clouded but i want to remind you if you're a christian extravagant generosity is your default state because it's your nature just like cheetahs want to run fast we should want to run we should want to be generous we should want to be in a culture that, that that sees and looks like us engaging in radical acts of generosity not because we feel that we should, not because we've been guilted into it, but because that's the DNA that runs through our body now. Gospel generosity is not a question about how much do I have to give. It's more a question of how much do I get to give for others. And if Jesus is in us and we are in him, this open-handed, joyful tendency to give towards others will be in us as well. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5 verse 14, the love of Christ controls us. Not guilt, not fear, not me, not my wife, not the world. If you are in Christ, the love of Christ controls you. That is your guiding, that is your motivating principle for generosity. So I want to call us this afternoon, I want to call us back to see the beauty of the gospel. Like I'm sure all of us find ourselves in uh, times where we just forget 
the beauty of our salvation. Like we get over the, the fact that we've been saved. I just want to bring us back to the reality that that is not something we should ever get over. We have been saved from so much and brought into so much. And if I was to truly grasp the beauty of the gospel, the greatest sacrifice on earth wouldn't feel like any sacrifice at all. That is the vision. That is the motivation for a sacrificial life of giving. Not guilt. Christ's love shown to us in the gospel. So first, the gospel is our motivation towards being devoted towards generosity. Secondly, the gospel is the measure for generosity. So I wonder how many times it's come to, there's been a need in front of you and it's come to, to, to a time where you've just got to think, okay, I need to give towards that. Or, or there's a need in the life of the church, it's going to take some of your time or take some of your resources and, and you come to, to addressing it and the question that comes to your mind is, okay, how much? How much do I have to give? How much of my time do I have to give? How, how much of my resources do I have to give? How much is going to be enough? Well, God's stunning generosity that we see in the gospel sets the bar. Romans 8, 32, He who did not spare his own son, but freely gave him up for us all. That's the bar that's set in the gospel. There's no higher gift than God giving his own son. See, actually, generosity isn't, isn't really about giving. Like, you can give and still be greedy. The measure for gospel generosity is sacrifice, not just the act of giving. Some people, when they come to think and answer that question, okay, how much do I have to give? When it comes to our finances, some church traditions say, well, well 10%, you should give 10% of, of your money. And they get that from an obscure Old Testament verse. That isn't what a culture of generosity is, really. Generosity is more than tithing. It's more even than just money. Like a greedy person can give away 10% and it just doesn't make a difference at all. And 10% might be a good start. It's interesting, the Old Testament, actually, if you were going to take that approach, it's probably more like 23%. But I don't think that's the approach that we're encouraged to take in the gospel. So even a tithe, even thinking that it's 10%, even that can be legalistic and, and that can be done out of guilt and, and it can be totally joyless. Our DNA isn't giving by percentage, it's giving by sacrifice. Like imagine if that was God's approach to us. I'll just give them 10%. Or I'll give them 23% of my love, 10% of my grace. No, he gives everything. He gives out of sacrifice. And folks, for us, when, that, when we think of, okay, there's a need, how are we going to address it? That means that sometimes we're going to have to forego certain things in order to be generous. Delay the holiday, wait for the new car, maybe have a meal out next week, or maybe just have one meal out this week instead of two foregoing things as an act of generosity but we're also doing that joyfully not doing it begrudgingly not not putting something to one side and thinking oh, I don't know what I would have loved to have done that but oh well I'm gonna have to put a bit more in the bag this week or go and spend some time oh well I'll just have to crack it that isn't that isn't the the model that we're given in the gospel it's joyful sacrificial generosity 
as Jesus gives of himself on the cross. The Bible tells us he has joy that is set before him. Like there is no greater act of generosity and for Jesus it's driven by joy. In Acts chapter 20 it says it's more blessed to give than to receive. Do you believe that? It's interesting that I um, spoke at Hope Church this morning and uh, George, the pastor there, has got COVID so I said I'd help them out and um, led their, their meeting and preached for them this morning. And... Uh, George messaged me in the week and he said, I'm going to send you something over just to say, just as a little thank you, I'm going to send you some food vouchers. And I said, don't you dare, don't give me anything. Like I'm doing this because I love you guys and I, I don't want anything at all. And he told me off. He said, Neil, don't you deprive us of our blessing, please. And he sent over a delivery voucher, which was very kind. But, but do you understand what he's saying? Actually, we are blessed when we give. We get to enjoy the act of generosity when we give. When we're not driven by guilt, when we're driven by our rational response to the gospel, giving away what we have, uh, neglecting or just putting things to one side for a little while so we can bless someone else, that fills us with joy. That is a blessing to us, maybe even more than it is to the people that we are giving to. And really, when we live like that, that kind of generosity, sacrificing for the good of others, that looks, that's bonkers to the world. Like it doesn't make sense. The world, according to its logic, is, well, I've earned it, I deserve it, so I'm going to benefit from it. But that's not gospel logic. In 2 Corinthians 5, Paul finds himself in a place where he's given of himself. And he has to defend himself against the charge that he's out of his mind. I love that. Like people are looking at Paul's ministry and he's just so generous with what he's, what he's got that people think he's nuts. Like the guy's lost it. Like I love that. And that is the kind of radical generosity that the gospel calls us into. Giving up things, neglecting things, waiting for things, sacrificially giving, like feeling the pinch of giving what we have, giving what we have to other people in a way that the world looks on and thinks they are mad. They are bonkers. But that is the kind of life that the gospel calls us into. I wonder when the last time was that your generosity made someone question your sanity. Interesting question, eh? The gospel is our driving motivation. It's our measure for generosity. And finally, the gospel gives us a mission for our generosity. See, every time we give sacrificially, and give joyfully. We declare our devotion. See, our generosity pulls at the question of what we truly love. When it comes to engaging in acts of generosity, we're asking ourselves the question, do I truly love God more than my stuff? Or do I love my money more than I love God? Do I love my home more than I love God? Do I love my time more than I love God? Every time we are sacrificially, joyfully generous with our resources, we're declaring that money doesn't rule us. We're declaring that we love Jesus more than those things. We're declaring that we are ruled by him and not ruled by our stuff. And actually, this is really helpful, guys. In that way, we can see generosity as a form of spiritual warfare. So quite often when we think of spiritual warfare, we think of prayer, we think of fasting. 
They're the ways to, to oppose the world. They're the ways to oppose the devil, to oppose the flesh. And that's right, like they are. But so is generosity. Because when we engage in acts of radical, sacrificial, joyful generosity, we're saying to the world, we're saying to the devil, and we're saying to our flesh, you don't own me. I belong to Jesus. My heart belongs to him. And I'm going to be moved by what he's done for me, not by what you say is true. Our generosity is a declaration of our devotion and it's a declaration of the gospel. Let me just throw this up. This is a quote by Tim Keller. And I love just how he describes it. He's talking about the church that we read of in Acts chapter 2, 42, 47. He says this, the early church was strikingly different from the culture around it in this way. The pagan society was stingy with its money and promiscuous with its body and how that is today Exactly the same. A pagan gave nobody their money and practically gave everyone their body. And the Christians came along and gave practically nobody their body and gave practically everybody their money. And you love that. And you love how the gospel just flips logic on its head. How it brings God's people to be conservative sexually and liberal financially. Gospel generosity stands out. When you engage in sacrificial, joyful generosity with a smile on your face, when you find more enjoyment in giving than receiving, that stands out because it is not the logic of this world. It's the logic of a greater kingdom. When we give sacrificially and joyfully, it declares the gospel and it declares our devotion. So as I wrap up, I just want to give us three ways that we can apply this to our lives as we move forward, as we seek to be the community that God wants us to be. You know, guys, I think, I think this call to generosity is maybe one of the biggest areas of devotion that we might struggle with. I think we get being devoted to the word, being devoted to prayer. I think we love being devoted to the fellowship, love being devoted to the Lord's Supper to the breaking of bread. But there is something about the idol of stuff that has a hold on, on our world, on our culture, and on many of us. Our stuff, our money, our resources, it's one of the biggest idols that we contend with. And because that's true, it's probably one of the biggest areas that we can deprive ourselves of joy. It's also one of the biggest areas that we can show the radical beauty of the gospel. And so I want to just encourage us towards three checks. Firstly, check your heart. Spend some time this evening or this week and check your heart to see if money, if your stuff, if things that you have are an idol for you. Ask yourself, are these things God's to me? Is my primary care for me? Is addressing my needs and, and the growth of my family the most important thing to me? Or is addressing the needs and growth of the church and God's people most important to you? Are the needs and the growth of the church the last thing on your budget? Do you want to address everything else before you look at those things? Or are they first in your mind? If you do give, are you driven by guilt? Or are you driven by the gospel? You know, Jesus says, if you want to know what a person really loves, 
follow the trail of his money. I wonder what our bank accounts say about how highly we value Jesus. Check your hearts. Check your hearts to see if money is an idol. And pray. Ask God if it is to put it to death. To stay your affections again for the gospel. To help you see the beauty of the gospel. To help him to help you love him more than you love the things of this world. Check your heart. Secondly, check your lifestyle to see if it reflects the gospel. The message of the cross, the gospel life is foolishness to those around us. It's interesting, the pattern that you see in the early church as you walk through Acts and the New Testament and you look at the letters, there seems to be a radical class distinctive between, between Christians and their peers. So this is what I mean. When you think of other people, so maybe do this now, think of someone else who has similar resources to you, is at a similar life stage to you. The radical life that the gospel calls us into suggests that the, the, the really should be something that sets us apart from them. So when we're together with those people who have a similar income, similar stage of life, similar resources to us, like the gospel will have taken such a hold of us that that the way that we live, the things that we have, the things that we don't have would beg questions of them. And they would ask us literally, why, why would you do that? Why would you not do that? As we grow in our awareness of the brokenness of the world around us and the needs around us, would we not be like the culture around us which seeks to hoard its riches and if it ever does give, to give out of guilt? But would we be motivated by the gospel? Would our measure of how much be Christ and his sacrifice? And would we seek to do radical things for the glory of God so that our lifestyle truly reflects the gospel? And here we go. Here's the third check. Check your surroundings. Look around you to see if there's any need that needs to be met. We declare this and we promise this to each other when we say our generosity liturgy, which we're going to say in a few moments' time. But we want to do this specifically as well. So in our GCs, as we gather this week, this will be one of the things that we do as we think about what it is to be a people of presence. We're going to think specifically, okay, what are the needs around us? What are the specific needs in the life of the church, in our community? Look around, open your eyes, ask God and pray and ask him to give you eyes to see the needs around us. And let's seek to be a church who move towards them in radical, sacrificial, joyful generosity in a way that truly portrays the beauty of the gospel which we have been transformed by. That is our rational response. I want to leave us with this quote. This is by um, a, a philosopher who wrote uh, around 100 AD. He wasn't a Christian. He was writing a report for Emperor Hadrian. And the emperor wanted to know what the Christian church were up to. And so he sent this report back. And would this be the type of report that people would write about liberty if they had a look in to our community? He said this, Christians love one another. They never fail to help widows. They save orphans from those who would hurt them. If one of them has something, he gives freely to the one who has nothing without boasting. If they see a stranger, Christians take him home and are happy as though he were a real brother. They don't consider themselves brothers in the usual sense, but brothers instead through the Spirit of God. 
And if they hear that one of them is in jail or persecuted for professing the name of their redeemer, they all give him what he needs. And if it is possible to redeem him, they set him free. And if there is among them any poor or naked, and if they have no spare food, they fast two or three days in order to supply the needy. And they do not declare in the ears of the multitude the kind of deeds they do, but are careful that no one should take notice of them. Truly, this is a new people. And there is something divine in them. Isn't that incredible? That someone who isn't a Christian looking in at the community of God's people who've been so radically transformed by the beauty and the power of the gospel that the only answer for the question of why they do and what they are doing is God must be at work. There must be a divine power at work. We are called into the privilege of generosity, folks. That's not a duty. It's not something we do out of guilt. Is something we do as a rational response to the generosity that we have already received from God. Let me just say as a final word, there is so much grace for us here. We should try as hard as we can and we should seek to walk in the ways that God has shown us. But there is grace when we fail, which we all do. This call to generosity isn't, isn't a guilt trip, folks. My heart, and I'm sure all of our hearts in all of this, more than anything, is the pursuit of your joy. And that is the fruit of a generous life. Let me pray. Father, we thank you for the example that we find in your son of what it is to be generous. And Jesus, we are never going to meet that standard. We are never going to measure up to to all that you've given to us through your life, death, burial, resurrection and ascension. But Father, we want to walk in, in a way that truly reflects the gospel. So help us. Help us to put our idols to death. Help us to be stirred and to be compelled by the gospel afresh this afternoon. Help us to see the call towards radical, sacrificial generosity as a path towards joy not a path towards misery. Help us not to be motivated by guilt, but truly motivated by a love for you and a love for those around us. And Father, I pray as we gather later in the week that you would give us eyes to see the needs around us, both in our church and in the roads around us and the communities around us. Give us eyes to see where it is that you will have us step in. Where do you want us to be like we just heard? A people who are so different, who are so radical, the only answer to the question of what are they doing is that you must be at work. And God, we want to do this for your glory. We want to do this so other people would be drawn towards seeing the truth of the gospel. And we pray that they would receive the generosity that we have received from you. We pray these things in Jesus' name and for his glory alone.